It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Early on in his new book, it's called The Plot to Save South Africa, journalist and commentator Justice Malala writes that he wanted to point out the dangers of extremism and hate and the threats they posed in 1993 and even today. He goes on to say the forces of illiberalism now sit in parliaments around the world. He talks about the need for ethical, values-driven leadership, as Nelson Mandela displayed during the week that Chris Haney was assassinated and how close we came to a civil war. Now, by format design on this podcast, we're not going to delve in too deeply into that tumultuous week, but to look at the lessons learnt from modern South Africa. So a very warm welcome to this edition of Fix SA. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and our guests have, and in coming weeks, will be asked how we can make things better in this country. How do we improve matters? How in the shortest space of time can we become a competitive and successful nation? Justice Malala, a very warm welcome to you. Let's start off with a book. How close did we come to a civil war in 1993? Very close, Jeremy, and and I loved what you said about solutions. For me, the key thing about that period of transition uh, from 1990 to 1994 was that we we reached out, the peace-loving, the right-thinking people of this country reached out and and averted these disasters. So in the book, I, I just deal with one particular crisis where one of the most popular leaders in the country was assassinated, where... The nation was in absolute upheaval, and um, and it took leadership. It took people at the top and people on the ground, ordinary South Africans, to say, actually, we won't be manipulated into war. And they they walked away from it. And I think this is a lesson not just about uh, politics. It's a lesson for business. It's a lesson for nation building, which is the topic of our discussion today. It's something for all of us to learn from, that we can reach across divides and we can do something extraordinary out of those circumstances. And in reaching across those divides, it's absolutely critical to talk. I've just finished part of the book um, during which uh, Rolf Mayer at the time uh, was watching television news. He had been uh, horrified by what had happened at uh, Boy Patong. Uh, President Mandela at the time, if I recall correctly, had said talks were now at an end. As he was making that announcement on television, the call came through from now President Ramaphosa because the two had established a, a back channel of communication. And what was happening then, and perhaps what needs to happen more now, perhaps it does, I don't know, is that uh, we do need to talk whatever the odds. Conversation needs to continue in spite of how difficult things have become. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you think about the massacres of those days, Jeremy, and you, you were working very hard as a, I think you were a news editor on, on one of the news channels. You know, every morning there'd be not reports of, you know, one or two people killed in political violence. There'd be hundreds of people killed in political violence. Um, between 1990 and 1994, 
14,000 people were killed in political violence. So I think this is the thing that we need to realize about our country today, that more now than ever before, we need these back channels, front channels. We need to talk to each other. We need to talk to each other because there's no other way um, we are in this tunnel together. If South Africa implodes, if we allow the dire, dire situation of unemployed young people to continue, the poverty to continue, it's not going to just take Malala or Megs down. It's going to take all of us down. So this is the absolute key thing. We share this space, we share this country, and we share its future. And, and that's why we need to preserve it. You also make the point, or it certainly comes across, that that conversation, that constant conversation that you refer to, also requires a lot of courage. But let's be honest, it's also hard work to do that. It's hard work. And along the way, people get tired. Along the way, many say, what is the point? And many will say, oh, why should I do it when others are just going about their lives, enjoying themselves? themselves, squirreling money away. Why should I be doing this? And I think this is where leaders need to step up. I think what happened in the 1990s was that we embraced, and by we, I mean, you know, people of privilege, people who came from poverty, who were still very, very poor. But the, the national interest was so overwhelming, and people embrace the fact that if one of us does well, all of us can do well. And that's why we were so heralded across the, across the world. You know, Jeremy, over the past four or five years, I've had the, the privilege to travel a lot um, in Europe, uh, in the US, and people still say, we did such an amazing thing by transitioning from apartheid and evil, evil system to democracy with minimal bloodshed, not without, but with minimal bloodshed. And I think it was because it was shoulder to the wheel for the majority of us. And by doing that, we managed to get across and reach 1994 and begin a new future. And I think these are lessons for today because we, we face not similar challenges, different challenges, but we face serious challenges. We face serious challenges. At the time, though, the stakes were very high. Just as you talk about everybody putting their shoulder to the wheel and working for the national interest, I wonder if we've lost sight of what that national interest is. I think we may have, Jeremy. What has happened over the past 30 years, you know, you think of the so-called struggle generation. Many people came back from exile, prison, uh, from the yoke of apartheid and said, let me build a life for myself. And part of building a life for myself is, is being selfish with your time, selfish with your contribution, selfish to the, with the nation in many ways and building your own little portfolio uh, by yourself. I think that many who came from very privileged backgrounds said, well, democracy is here and um and let me live my life and continue i don't need to contribute and so instead of working together and rebuilding 
this broken entity that is South Africa. Many of us went our separate ways. We took from it. Uh, we took the privilege of being uh, people of the new South Africa, but we didn't give as much or, or as generously as we could have. We went into knee-jerk mode. I, I will, you know, an anecdote from our own life. In the late 1990s, there was a big debate about what should we do about dealing with the poverty of the past, the inequality of the past. You know, um, there were debates about a wealth tax at that time. And I believe Nelson Mandela and his cabinet at the time, if they had moved on such a wealth tax, I think that many of us working South Africans would have agreed to such a tax, but we never did it. And I think, I think that was part of the walking away instead of dealing with the problem. So we kind of forgot that democracy is hard work, that building or rebuilding a nation from the devastation of the 1980s is hard work. And I point to the 1980s in particular, because those were the years when Bantu education had devastated black communities and um, policies of the ANC, such as Liberation Now, Education Later, had led to many, many people missing a year, two years, some three years of schooling. The confluence of all that needed some way to heal, to get back, to get people back into quality education. And I don't think we did enough of that. And and that's where I think uh, things have come back to bite us. So part of what you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, is adopting the pay it forward philosophy. Uh, in other words, uh, those of us that were able to at the time and are still able to today to make a better contribution towards fixing things need to step up and do it. You're not the first person on this podcast that has said that. The question, though, Justice Malala, is have we left it too late? No, I don't think it's too late at all, Jeremy. I think that we are in a crisis moment. I think that it's becoming clearer to all of us just how deep our problems are now. And yet, I don't think that we've left it too late. I think that this time of despair is the right time for us to say, we can turn this thing around. We all need to do something in our small spaces, in our big spaces. Those of us who have the microphone, like you and me, who can speak to more people than many other people are lucky to these are the times when we need to focus on the solutions, to put forward some solutions, to elevate people who have solutions, and to essentially say to those we've put in power, our leaders, that reach out to other sectors, to our business, to um, the teaching profession, to professionals who want to do something, who want to give off their skills and expertise use them and use them quickly and assiduously, and we can turn this thing around. So I think I've had the expression so many times in South Africa, five minutes to midnight, and you know we, we use it a lot, but we've used it before. We used it in, 19, in 2007 when a new administration came in and Tawubeki was kicked out. We used it frequently in the 2010s. 
And those were terrible moments, but we managed a way forward. We managed to get rid of the state capture gang, if you will, and some of them are still facing all kinds of sanction for what happened then. So I think we can turn it around. Uh, too late, no, not at all. So leading on from that, and let's pivot back to the book then, uh, your argument is predicated on what you termed when you were describing Nelson Mandela at the time uh, as having ethical values-driven leadership. So two questions. What is that? First of all, do you have a better definition than others perhaps? And are we in short supply when it when it comes to that particular quality? I think the right values, values that we instill in our children, as basic as hard work, are in short supply. I think what has been eroded in our society over the past 30 years has been the idea that you put in and you'll get out, that actually my connections are what will get me a leg up and will give me profit. I think if we define some of these values and begin to put them in a box and say, what are we? What do we want? We want a country that works on honesty, on merit, that is driven by values of service, of kindness, values that are implicit and sometimes explicit in our constitution. I think these are the things that whether it's in elections next year or in appointing people to leadership positions in the civil service, in the private sector, the basics that you don't steal as an executive, as the chief financial officer of an organization and so forth. These are what should embed the people that we put forward in our leadership positions across the board, politics to business, to NGOs, to civil society, and so forth. So assuming we've got that type of leadership in place then, and it does exist in this country, make no mistake, not everyone is bad. How do we then prioritize the problems that we need to fix? I think this is where actually South Africa is in a very good space. It would be, in my view, very easy to list the things that we agree on. Right now, Jeremy, all of us can agree, rich and poor, young and old, black and white, all of us, there need not be a debate about the fact that the crisis of energy provision, the crisis of ESCOM, absolutely need a solution right now. So we can take that and say number one. Now, this cannot be something that gets solved only by the government, because at the moment, for example, the solution provided by government is to appoint the Minister of Electricity. So, Jeremy, I think that we can pick up and make a list very quickly, as South Africans, all of us, that these are the priorities that we need to focus on. Energy provision is an example. We all agree there is no one in South Africa who doesn't think this is a perhaps even existential problem for South Africa. If we don't fix this, then we won't be able to fix many, many other aspects of our economy, of our country's challenges. So you start there and then you tackle them. Some are multifaceted and you need to tackle them from many, many different points. But I think we can prioritize five key things to fix. We can prioritize how quickly we can do that. And this is where we need to be open. 
that this is not something that can be fixed by one sector. Business cannot stand on a patch somewhere and say, oh, you know, if you could take government out of it, then we'd do it in a week. Or the DA stands there or the ANC stands there saying, oh, those ones are this and that, so forth and so forth. We all need to get into this and fix this problem. Otherwise, in a year from now, we'll be in an even worse position than we are right now. So I think we can agree on a set of priorities. Fixing the civil service is another one. Why should it be such a harrowing, harrowing experience to go to the Department of Home Affairs? Why should it be such a big issue to get your child to get a driver's license, for example? These are things that we could smooth out, make work better, and so forth and so forth. And this is where collaboration comes in, that we could do all these things working together without saying, this is my patch, and don't come and step on it. And justice on paper, in theory, that sounds perfect, but you know well that we have to come overcome problems of political polarization uh, within government itself, and also an increasing amount of territorial possession. Again, need I point you to the issue between public enterprises, minerals and energy, and the new electricity minister's office. None of them seem to be talking to each other. They're talking beyond each other. So it's a, it's a question of perhaps a little bit more maturity when you're looking for a solution, when you're looking to fix that. Look, Jeremy, I think that we need to recommit ourselves to political maturity, to political cooperation. No matter our differences, the crime problem, for example, affects everyone and the poor more than anyone else. Surely a party that stands for the poor would be saying, let's fix this problem because it's the people of Kailicha, the people of Alexandra Township who are suffering. Same thing with businesses. You know, uh, businesses, uh, attacks on business premises have shot through the roof. Um, there are many, many examples of how this affects business and is driving away business. So political maturity means saying there are some things that are not about my party only. They are about this nation. Let's do something about them very quickly. Justice, part of what you're suggesting also requires a lot of national stamina and, I guess, durability. If we're going to embark on this path of fixing the country, the key difficulty for all of us, no matter what contribution we're going to make, is to guarantee that we stay the course. Uh, How do we do that without becoming despondent, as so many South Africans are right now? I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that it's not going to be easy. Solutions are not just going to come and it's voila and all is good and happy. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to be bumpy. And I think I'd make an example with one big decision we didn't make over the past 15 years. And that's to say we're giving civil servants too big increases. So if you go back to the period after Tabumbeki stepped down in 2008, and go from there. The types of increases that were being given to civil servants were way above inflation, way above the norm in the private sector. And we now sit with a very big problem as a country that we have too big a wage bill in the public service. Mm. So that needed early on 
the government to say, we can't continue like this. We've got to tighten our belts and not agree to these increases. But we've done it increasingly every three years with every negotiation round. We are going to now have to face that problem that we can't afford the civil service that we have and that we may have to trim the civil service, that we may have to give people far lesser increases than we have over the past 15 years. That will take time and that will be a huge challenge for the country because it will come with protests, it will come with pushback and so forth. But it's a tough decision that we have to do. Um, if you go back to the 1990s, we did this when Nelson Mandela came in and, and the civil service, which was bloated, was trimmed and largely transformed. Political will will be needed. Um, will on the part of the nation will be needed. But it won't be easy. And I think we should be honest to the nation from all sectors that rebuilding, getting this country to work is going to take mm. hard work. It's going to take hard work. It's also going to take a lot of compromise, as you suggest. And I wonder sometimes if we haven't, as a nation, lost the art of compromise. We previously, again, referencing back to your book and how that tumultuous week was eventually solved, uh, there was compromise on both sides. That doesn't happen as much now as it used to. It doesn't happen as much, but it should South Africa is an example, a perfect example of what can be done when people step back and say, is my position really that hard line? Am I really drawing a line in the sand here? What does it mean to draw that line in the sand? And I think we know that many lines in the sand are not as hard when you look back at them with hindsight, and you say, why did I fight for something that I could have found a way to accommodate others across the aisle on? So I think the art of compromise is still there. We need to sit around the table and fix it. Uh, Jeremy, you know, can I put it a different way? Here's my view. I think that there's a lot of posturing that justice says, I stand for the poor. And then it becomes, no, Jeremy is a business person and he doesn't stand for the poor. But Jeremy happens to be a business person who employs a thousand people who at every month on the 25th or on the 15th or on the 1st, they get a wage in their bank account and they feed two children, three children, a family goes to school, gets clothed, gets fed, and so forth and so forth. That is a massive, massive contribution. If on the political side, I stopped and said, I need Jeremy because mm. he's given me seven jobs or eight jobs. And actually, Jeremy and I are aligned. The better I make it for Jeremy, the better for those seven people and the better for their kids and the better for the future of South Africa. So instead of compromise and being able to step back, we've become so ideological that no I'm the only one who stands for the poor. You can stand for the poor, although you are alleviating in your everyday life, in your business. I think we need to show each other a little bit more that we are actually so interconnected, whether it's business or the SA Communist Party, whether it's uh, socialists um, in red berries with the billionaires and billionaire business people of this country, 
I think that we have so much more in common than what divides us. But in the public glare, in the histrionics, in the posturing of politics, sometimes that gets lost. And that is a tragedy because together we can do so much more. This is a, a final question to you, Justice Malala, and it's one that we put to every one of our guests. And when you talk to young people, uh, say in 20 years' time, when you talk to your two daughters, uh, and if I can name them Ayanda and Freya, because you mention them in the book, and you talking to them about the early 2020s, and the role that they have in continuing to build South Africa, which is hopefully a little bit more fixed than it is right now. What is their role, I wonder? What will you say to them as the baton-holding generation? Because we're coming to a point now where it's time for people like you and I to move on. It becomes their responsibility, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I wish our generation had done was to remind ourselves that we are not here for ourselves, but that we, we need to build a fantastic country, a great country for those who come after us. That I'm not just Justice Malala and I'm on television with Jeremy or I'm on a podcast with Jeremy or we're launching our books for ourselves. That we are, uh, you used an expression earlier, playing it forward. Mm. I think in the moment you do things and you, you achieve and so forth. And I think it's important to think about legacy. One of the things that we didn't do enough of as a nation is to leave something for our children. And as the world, we didn't do enough to start talking about climate change, for example, early on. So... If I were to say to my kids, this is what you have to think about now, I would say do for yourself, but constantly think about doing for the country and particularly for those who will come after you. Because quite frankly, Jeremy, I'm a bit ashamed about the kind of country and world that I bequeath to my kids, that as I walk off the stage, I feel that we could have done so much more and that we frittered away so much opportunity. I would say to these young people across South Africa, the opportunities are so vast still in these times of hard economic times, in these very terrible times in many ways, uh, there is still so much opportunity and when you do get the opportunity, use it to play it forward a little bit because there will come a time when you hand over and it's better for the keys to be intact than like us, like me, to be a bit ashamed of the, of the bunch of keys that you're handing over because many are rusted over and can open the door uh, for them to move into the, next, into the next step of this game, into the next room in this house. So that would be my thing, that we need to do a little bit better about building for the future. And I think the opportunity right now for South Africa is that things are very challenging, but when things are at their most dire, when things are most challenging, that's when people of goodwill, people of good character, people of 
outstanding values can step up and do extraordinary things. It's not at the time of huge abundance that we all needed, but now we are all needed. And I think all of us can be, can be leaders and can leave something a little bit better than what I leave professionally uh, in our country for the next generation. I like the analogy of leaving our children a shiny set of keys. Justice Malala, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it is a book of political reality, but it really does read like a thriller. It's called The Plot to Save South Africa, Chris Harney's Murder and the Week Nelson Mandela Averted Civil War. It's published by Jonathan Ball. It is available in South Africa right now. My name's Jeremy Mag. Thanks for listening to this Fix Essay podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.